Well, in a moment, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 5, if you want to find that in your Bible so that you can read with me. Joe, I didn't know you were here, bud. Thanks for coming today. Um, We'll be seeing you over in Pasco, too. All right. The um, apostle told us in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7, that God has not called us to impurity. He has called us to holiness. And so what we've been talking about all these weeks is what is that call? Let us understand that call and let us respond. So it's all been about call and response. And uh, this coming Tuesday, I'm going to begin with the ending. And I'm going to begin by extending the invitation immediately. And uh, I will start with pastors. And each will have a card like you see on the screen that basically will um, call for them, invite them to... First of all, personally, commit to seek the Lord in a personal prayer and repentance experience. And to purpose to worship the Lord with a radical personal obedience. And then to commit to call their congregation to prayer. Just like we've been over these weeks. And then to participate in some area-wide prayer and solemn assemblies couple of which have already happened around here, some more of which are going to happen, and we're going to be trying to see those happen all across our convention. And then finally, to join with other pastors, whether they're Baptists or, or otherwise, in their communities and in their cities, in the uh, pursuit of God for a reviving of His church and an awakening of the area of the Northwest. So we'll be calling for pastors to respond. Let there be light. Do I glow all of a sudden? (laughs) To respond in that kind of way. And I'm going to be issuing an altar call uh, at the end of the talk for such a thing. But I'm also going to be extending a call to everyone present. Because I've been praying. And I've been praying that God would bring a holy disturbance. I mean a disturbance that messes with your sleep. A disturbance that messes with your appetites. A disturbance that distracts you from the normal stuff of everyday living and causes you to think more and more about the person of God and the purposes of God. And I've been praying that God wreck you with his holiness, melt you in his presence. And as I say all that and you go, um, well, who are you to pray that God disturb me, wreck me, melt me? I mean, what, what is that all about? Uh, The short answer to that is, I'm nobody. The little bit longer answer to that is, I am like the messenger 
of Numbers 22. See, there was a prophet by the name of Balaam, and there was a foreign king, a Moabite king, who was trying to employ the prophet Balaam to speak a curse against Israel. And Balaam was trying to figure this whole thing out. And while he was trying to figure it out, riding down the road on his donkey, God caused the donkey to be able to talk. You know that story, Numbers 22? If you don't, you'll have fun reading it when you leave. And the donkey began to bring a word from God to the prophet and enable the prophet to see some things he hadn't been seeing. I am that donkey. Nothing special about me. Just that God's allowed me to see something. He's put a word in my mouth and he's opened my mouth to be able to say it. And so that's a little bit about who I am. What is it that I have been seeing? Well, what I've been seeing is that the church in America is very, very sick. Uh, That's not a surprise to a lot of us. Uh, That may be a, a surprise to a few. But we are anemic. We are without the power of God. Uh, We are without the glory of God. We are a shell of what the church is supposed to be. And you see it in so many ways. Uh, Just statistically, you see it in that thousands of churches in America close their doors and fold every year. Thousands of people leave the church every day. In America, Uh, something over 80% of all churches in America are either plateaued, flatlined, or declining and dying. And in our own convention, and a study done from uh, 86 to 2006, we found that during that 20 year window, we had 35% fewer baptisms, meaning fewer people coming to Christ, 21% fewer church members. 26% fewer involved in a Bible study. All the while, 42% more people in the Northwest. Pretty sick, pretty anemic, pretty absent of power. Um, Church has become a religious experience, a spiritual experience, and for some, a gain. And it's void of the person and the purposes and the power of God. And so, in the middle of that, God has begun to issue a call to us. Now, um, last uh, November, when we attended the convention together, uh, I had the privilege to bring the annual sermon, the annual message to the convention. And as I had been preparing for that, I felt like God put on my heart uh, Luke chapter 5. Now, in 2009, I was not at a great place personally. I was discouraged. I was frustrated. I was angry. Um, I was not seeing growth in the church like I felt like God wanted to have in the church and that I personally wanted to see. And so uh, I just had uh, some disappointment that I was grappling with. And, uh, you know, along comes this invitation to speak at the convention. And so I'm like, oh, so God, what do you want me to say? 
because uh, I'm not at a great place. And God took me to Luke chapter 5. And if you'll look with me in verse 1 and just kind of follow the story, it's a familiar story. I've talked about it around here a few times. Uh, Verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This is the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Now, if you can imagine being down on the, the lake shore, and a bunch of people began to gather because they've heard that Jesus is there. And as he begins to speak and as he begins to teach, the crowd gets bigger and bigger. And finally, he has to get into a little boat and push out a ways because they kept pressing in upon him. He was about to step into the lake. And so he's sitting in this boat and with the natural amplification that happens, you know, across the water and up on the shore, he's speaking to this gathered crowd around the lake shore. And verse four, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And verse five, Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So I'm reflecting on that text. And it seems like God is saying to me, and thus to bring to the convention last year, uh, I know you've prayed. I know you've worked. I know that you've been about the, uh, the business of the gospel. I know you've longed to see people come to Christ. I want you to continue to do it. I want you to believe me one more time. I want you to put out the nets one more time. I want you to trust one more time. I want you to invite others and extend uh, the gospel one more time, one more time, one more time. Keep on keeping on. And uh, so I brought that message and, and encouraged us all in the convention. Would you do it one more time? Believe one more time, work more, one more time, drop a net one more time. So as the convention was coming to a close and an election was held and uh, the convention asked me to serve as president, I was like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? And so the next month, December, I literally went away to a cabin for two and a half, nearly three days just to pray and to seek the Lord and to more or less invite. Would you speak into my life if, if there's some kind of stewardship and there's some kind of responsibility that you want me to fulfill with this platform? I need you to give me a clue. And God began to speak to me about the state of the church and the state of uh, what is going on for Christians across the Northwest. And this call to holiness, this call to repentance, this call for us to become a radically obedient people to him. And so I entered into a process personally. I began to seek the Lord personally. I began to consider my own life. And, uh, you know, basically, just to be real with you, I look at my own life and I'm going, well, gosh, 
I'm moral more than most. And I'm committed more than most. You know, I think I'm doing okay here. And through the reflections in some scripture readings and, and extended prayer time, God began to show me just how busted and sinful and depraved I am. And I began to get a holy disturbance in my soul about all of this. And at some point in that process, God brought me back to Luke 5. And I'm meditating on it. You know what that means. So you're like reading it over and over again, and you're visualizing, you're taking it in. And so I'm there at the lake shore, and I'm listening to Jesus teach, and I'm seeing the crowd gather. I see him get in the boat, and he's continuing to teach. And then he turns to Peter, and he says to Peter, you know, take the boat on out, and let's drop those nets again. And I hear the frustration of Peter. We fished all night. We caught nothing. I don't want to do this again. Nevertheless, you say so. And they go out, and they drop the nets, and boom, full net. Too much for the boat to handle. Another boat comes out. All these other fishermen come out. And they're trying to haul this incredible catch in. It's a miracle. Everybody's shouting and, 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 and stirred and, and celebrating. And I'm living the text, right? And then I get to the verse that I had stopped at. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And while I'm meditating on that text, what I have to come to grips with is this. I love miracles. I am addicted to... To seeing God move and God stir and God transform and God save and and God do wondrous things. I'm addicted to that stuff. I love that stuff. And I am more impressed with miracles than I am with God himself. I mean, it's that picture of the small child who gets a gift from his father and he's way more taken with the gift than with the giver. And I began to get it. That God was pretty small in my own heart and in my own thinking while me and my stuff and my dreams and things I wanted to see were so much bigger than Him in my heart. And He began to melt me about that and, and, and break my heart about that. And suddenly a light was shining in what I thought was this pretty good heart. And I'm seeing all this ugly, depraved, disgusting stuff in my life. And suddenly Peter's confession becomes my confession. Oh God, oh God, oh God, I am a sinful man. And and God began to get into my face. See, I've been in ministry over 30 years. 
I've been at this church over 20 years. And God began to get in my face and say, so how much longer are you going to play at being a holy man? At being a consecrated man? How much longer are you going to mess around until you have a radical obedience in your life? And I was faced with a choice right there and then in my prayer closet. Am I going to continue business as usual? Or am I going to bend the knee toward a radical obedience? I'm talking about into all the minutiae. Because what I, what I had done, friends, is I had become obedient about everything that we would call substantive. But I had all these little things in my heart that were like little pet sins, little personal indulgences nobody ever knew about. Kind of a thought thing, a feeling thing, never an outward really, outwardly really expressive thing. Just little pet indulgence kind of things. And God had his hand, his finger on everything saying, I want it, I want it, I want it. And First Thessalonians 4, 7 just echoed and reiterated, I'm calling you to holiness, I'm calling you to holiness, I'm calling you to holiness. Well, most of you know that that then led me, I, I made the decision, it's going to be radical holiness. Whatever that looks like, whatever that costs. And I came back and I began to share that with our staff and our elders. And I began to say, I think God's calling us to, for that to be all about what our church is, is going to engage God about and, and experience with God and go forward with God about. And, man, I heard them carefully and prayerfully as they're like, okay, you know, who can say God doesn't want us to be more holy? But, you know, we're pretty pretty good church we're pretty good people so let's just don't go bashing on people and bashing church and all that kind of stuff and, and i heard that caution but at the same time what was going on inside of me was so radical i just didn't know how that was going to play out and so i, I literally was pretty fearful and i expressed my fear to staff and elders I, i'm kind of fearful about this because i have invested you know 20 of the best years of my life to see something for god happen here I don't want to blow that up. I don't want to just screw that up. And we began this journey together. And, and, and literally, I, I think a couple of the best elder meetings we've had in our entire history happened over these last couple of months. And then I brought that to our entire leadership team at our annual leadership retreat in September. And I said, here's what I think God's doing, and I think here's his call, and we've got to press in on a radical obedience to be a holy people, to be separate from this world. We're in it, but we're not of it. And so to get the talons of the culture out of us, and that we are in the hand of the Holy Spirit for whatever his will may play out in us. And I think it was the best leadership retreat we ever had in 20 years. And everybody confessed that they were on that page. And yes, let's move forward. 
And so that launched us into, you know, the multi-weeks of emphasis that we had on going deeper with God. And it was kind of a conversation, dual conversation between our Sunday gatherings and then what would go on in your small groups, right? And, you know, it was not uh, church light at all. We started talking about sin. We started talking about the wrath of God. We started talking about justification, and regeneration, and sanctification, and glorification. I mean, all this stuff that a lot of people would go, Shee, what are we doing here? And you guys would go to your group, and you'd unpack these things, and you'd find, you know, how's that supposed to apply in my life? And something dynamic and something powerful has been going on, which brought us to this kind of defining moment on Saturday, October 16, when we assembled for a solemn assembly. And for those of you that were not a part of it or you don't know what we're talking about, a solemn assembly is an ancient kind of practice. It was uh, initially something that would happen in the Jewish community where uh, religious leaders would occasionally call following a feast, a solemn assembly, or occasionally if there was some kind of national crisis, they would convene a solemn assembly. And the purpose was to come before the Lord and come before Him with repentance, come before Him with a fresh consecration, etc. Now that has continued on in the age of the church, and uh, from time to time the church has convened in solemn assemblies for confession and repentance and renewed commitment and a cleansing and so on. So we convened that solemn assembly on Saturday, October 16. I asked you to fast before you came. A few of you had never fasted before. It was a brand new experience. And we came as empty before the Lord as we could come. And we started our day by going through a little personal exercise that examined our heart. We more or less said, God, just bring the light. Bring it. Shine it. Show me. And after we had this personal examination time in which you were asked to journal your sins, write them down. And you didn't know this was going to happen. I then asked you to pair up guy with guy, woman with woman, and confess all your sins to someone else, claiming James 5.16, that when we confess to one another and the prayer of faith is offered, we will be healed. That probably was my greatest moment of anxiety. Because, obviously, that's the perfect time for this thing to really blow up. What? Okay, I'll do a little exercise. I'll do a little thinking about sin. I'll do a little praying. I'll do a little writing. You want me to talk to somebody and tell them my sins? I'm not going to. That, that could have been the moment of revolt and the whole thing just be over. But you guys went there. And I'm looking all over this building with you guys seriously engaged, one-on-one, confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another and seeing some liberating power of God come upon you. We finished that session. We started moving to something else. Most of you reconvened. Some of you weren't through, and you didn't quit. And some of you came late to the next session because you were not going to come until you finished all your confession. Amen. And then we convened in small groups, your share groups. 
And we ask you to confess to one another, how have you wronged the group? How have you not been all about what God was up to with your, your group? And we ask you to pray for your leader, and we ask you to pray for one another. And it was, you know, a powerful time of you guys engaging God with one another. And so everything began to be multiplied exponentially. What God was doing in individuals now was happening in a community. And we closed our day together. Continuing to hear a call, not just a call to repentance, not just a call to radical obedience, but would we be a people that would be yielded to God in a way that he could revive us? That he could reinvigorate. That he could bring us to a point of normal Christianity. Because so much of what's happening across the churches of America is subnormal. Would we come up to normal Christianity? And before I could even get the ask out, you guys began to stand. And you took that stand. We will be a church that God revives by His grace. And we will be a church that is a catalyst to God doing this in other churches all around our community and our region and across this convention. This matter of the call is directly tied to who issues the call. Who's God? And one of the things that we grappled with here over a couple of Sundays is this statement that A.W. Tozer made. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, if I could catch you in an unaware moment where you're thinking about something else, you're engaged in something else, and suddenly uh, lay this question on you, who is God? What is God to you? Some of those first thoughts that come out of your mouth or, or appear in your mind would be extremely revelatory about you. And here's the thing that we began to unpack and to recognize, because there's a phenomenon going on in American churches all over our country. And some have referred to this phenomenon as a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Where we have exchanged the gospel of Jesus Christ for a gospel of moralism. A gospel of therapy. A gospel of deism. And when we talk about being moralistic, we're talking about helping people be nice people who do nice things. And we, we have some behaviors modified and changed. We're, we're a nicer people. When we talk about therapeutic, we're talking about some kind of self-actualization taking place where I bring my brokenness, I bring the things that don't work very well in my life into uh, church or into, you know, the God arena and say, God, fix me, do something with help me. And when we talk about deism, we're talking about this kind of spirituality where we feel like uh, we're in proximity to the divine. 
And it's kind of couched in this grandfatherly uh, milieu where uh, he kind of loves me and he dotes on me and he winks at me and he's quick to forgive. And, you know, there's not a very high bar of any kind of expectation. And, and friend, in this kind of moralistic therapeutic deism, if, if you were to begin to talk about God as a God of wrath, God is a God who condemns and judges. God is a God who has a standard called holiness. People absolutely would freak out. Don't even talk to me about that like Old Testament God. I'm a New Testament person. I'm a grace person. And what we were reminded is that it's the same God, Old and New Testaments. The difference being... We saw the wrath of God played out in the Old Testament amongst people. The wrath of God played out in the New Testament upon His Son. And His Son took all the wrath that you and I deserve. Same God. Same standards. Same person. So... How we think about God absolutely reveals a lot about who we are and what we are like. If I tend to lean on the moralistic side, then my, my concerns are going to be about behavior. My concerns are going to be about who's towing what line and who's in and who's out based upon their behavior. It's primarily a therapeutic image that I'm thinking about with God. That, you know, He's primarily that fixer in the sky that you bring your problems to and your hurts to, and He's going to help that in some kind of way. Oh, by the way, if my life is humming along pretty well, I don't quite need Him as much as those other times. And if it's more of that kind of vague, uh, deistic, spiritual... Uh, you know, detached God in the sky who just kind of is loving and always forgiving. Friends, that's neither compelling nor transforming. These are all skewed abominations of the gospel. And it is prevalent in churches everywhere across our country. So this call is a call to holiness. What are we talking about? Well, first of all, when we start talking about the holiness of God, we're talking about how he is separate and different from everyone else and everything else there is. That ancient word holy literally means to cut and to separate. And with reference to God, it is a indicator of how separate and how different he is from everything else. And not only that. How transcendent. To transcend means to exceed the limits, to go above the limits. And he is not only separate and different from all of us, he is above all of us. He is over all of us. There is no power among us that can ever be over him because he's transcendent. So as we began to get in touch with his holiness... We began to see that any time God wanted to have something to do with anything or any person, he would make that holy. He would sanctify it. And so uh, then you begin to read in the in the biblical text about holy bread and holy ground and holy nation and a holy people. 
And these are things that God has said, I want them in my use. I will sanctify them and use them. And we are in that category. So he has called us to holiness, which is to say that he is then going to take us and separate us from the culture and from the world. We're still in it, but we're not of it. We're separated from it to him. And just to be more clear, we're not talking about some kind of moral reference at that point. We tend to think about holiness as synonymous with purity. And although that is a part of the connotation, it is not synonymous with it. And and it's not leading to just a moral kind of reference. So when we reflected on Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, and Isaiah goes to the temple to worship, and he's just overwhelmed with the presence of God, we're probably looking at the most moral man in Israel. But when he comes into the holy presence of God... He is so overwhelmed with holiness, this most moral man in Israel recognizes how undone, how unholy he is. And he melts before the presence of God in confession. And we're certainly not talking about self-righteousness as is often described as holier than thou. Attitudes and behaviors. This is not about us. This is about Him and about His work upon us in such a way that we become altogether different people, separated from everything else in His hand, holy. Now, there's no promises with that. If you're anything like me, you go, okay, okay, okay. So that's where it gets good. Um, If we become a holy people and if we kind of get things squared up with God, then we will see all the things we long to see. We'll see the church be vibrant and dynamic and we'll see uh, the mission being accomplished and people coming to Christ, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that. There's no guarantee of that. All I know is that God has called, and He is absolutely worthy of our response. This is not about holiness and responsiveness to God as a means to another end. That is the end. God, and honoring God, and becoming yielded and holy unto God is the end. And if he is gracious, and if he purposes to do otherwise, then he might take our holy lives, our consecrated selves to him, and he might revive us. He might do something miraculous. He might do something that transcends what normally goes on in the life of the church. And I pray that that happens, but there's no guarantee to that. This is not a do A and you get B. This is just a do A. And God will be God, and we'll see what happens with that. But I'm kind of like David, whose son, little child, was sick unto death. And he began fasting, and he began praying, and he began to clothe himself in ashes and sackcloth. And and everybody's saying, you know, that child's going to die. And he goes, I I know he's going to die, but 
it just may be that God may be gracious. And so I'm going to do everything that I can do to call upon the graciousness of God. And I pray he revives our church and the churches of our convention. I pray that there is a mighty awakening that happens across this convention. And when I talk about that, I'm not talking about weird stuff that you read in various religious publications where people are are doing weird things and become weird people. That stuff drives me crazy. What I'm talking about is what you see uh, defined by Alec Rollins, where there is this overwhelming sense of God's presence. And it powerfully rests on Christian people. And where we have been dead and where we have been lethargic, where we have been distracted, where we have been much about self, he restores that. He changes us so that the life he intended becomes normal. So, will you surrender? Will you say, no more games, no more acting, no more pretending, no more just kind of hanging in the proximity of the things of God, but by His grace, I am going to yield myself to a radical Obedience. Will you repent of anything that's less than radical obedience? Will you, as a practice, daily practice of your experience with Christ, confess sin, become a confessional people? You know, we don't believe in having to go to a booth and and get with one guy. Confess to your group. Confess to your prayer partner. Confess to your spouse. uh, Confess to significant others that God keeps putting in your life. Confess to God. Be a confessional people. Will you be radically obedient? How does that play out for those little pet indulgences in your life? How does that play out in your family? How does that play out in your workplace? How does that play out in this church? And what God's up to you, up to with you in this church? Now, we're going to take a few minutes to do something that we haven't done very often around here. And we're going to give you an altar call. Now... There's nothing magical about that. But if you're like drawing a line in the sand and you're stepping across it with fresh commitment and you're trying to to seal in your own heart, it's just going to be different. It's just not going to be the same. Then I'm going to designate this area that we normally call a platform as an altar, as a holy place. And for just the next few moments, it's just open. And we're going to invite you, if you feel impressed, you don't have to. 
But if you feel impressed, just come and kneel for a moment and articulate to God silently some aspect of uh, repentance, confession, obedience, and then just go back to your seat. But you're drawing a line in the sand. You're stepping across it. There's no going back. I'm not going to have business as usual. It's not going to be the same by God's grace. Then we invite you into this time. Let me say a prayer, and then uh, we'll invite you to the altar. Father, you've been at work in us. You've been speaking to us for all these weeks and months. We've made a bunch of decisions. We've, we've sought to be more consecrated. And uh, we're just using this occasion right now. As a defining moment. No turning back. Though none go with me. I will follow. In Jesus name.